This is a pain information network. Outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. So this is kind of a mixed podcast. It's going to be for both providers of health care and particularly those that provide interventional uh, pain care and those that are just kind of interested what works and what doesn't work. Um, I love listening to this guy. Uh, He's been a friend for a long time, Dr. Kenneth Candido. Very competitive market, Chicago. Well, he's conquered it. He's professor of uh, surgery and anesthesiology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He's a big deal. He's an advocate uh, for good pain care. I love hearing him because when he gets on the podium, which is really a stage, in front of a bunch of folks, as I saw this weekend, He's got a command of language that I wish I had. He's uh, very articulate and fun to listen to. So he's uh, one of these guys that um, has always done the right thing for the right reasons. He'll tell you a little bit about himself, but uh, very strong, very experienced, understands the literature, understands how to read the literature. It's one thing when you read a random article on the Internet to really understand what it means. It's another thing to look on some news purveyor or hear some news purveyor, like, uh, say, for example, the Today Show or CBS Evening News or whatever it is, and sift through the chaff and trying to find out what is really valuable and relevant to you. Particularly what's relevant is what works. And that's why we do these outcome studies. And what is an outcome study? Well, it's something that uh, is very well structured and understood. It takes biostatisticians, it takes uh, really experienced clinical professionals to understand how to synthesize the data and make it meaningful. Because saying I'm better means nothing. Showing us improved function, quality of life indices, a number of uh, validated statistical models that show you're better, that means something. And we grade it, and we uh, take it to uh, level one, level two, et cetera. And he'll talk a little bit about that. And so I, I just want everybody to be a educated consumer. Now, another thing is you may notice that uh, there's a lot of background noise and uh, fun stuff whenever I do these, and I'm going to tell you why. To get somebody on this show to the level of uh, Ken Candido, you have to kind of <laughs> go where the moment is. And literally, I was at the Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting. Uh, Ken was there. He just pretty much finished a lecture that uh, I could listen to over and over. I heard him the week before, too. A few more slides, but the message was there. And I got his attention, and I got him to come on the podcast. And so for me, I mean, I'm privileged. And I I just think it's, it's fun to listen to this kind of intellect. So... I'm going to pretty much uh, go on into this with the understanding that some will have to listen to it twice. I sometimes have to listen to it three times. Some will really get it first round. But, you know, be the consumer. Be the consumer and uh, don't don't accept mediocrity. Uh, here's Ken Candido. I have with us here Dr. Ken Cadido, a well-known, well-respected interventionalist who practices at the University of Illinois College of Medicine and is a full professor. 
And to his right is Jonathan Deitch. And I've known Jonathan for some time. Interventional pain medicine. I just heard his daughter is going to be applying for fellowship in interventional pain medicine. In an excellent career, I think we would both agree with that. Our topics today are going to be near and dear to these uh, folks. And I just heard Dr. Candido give an excellent lecture on something that is critically important to the folks at American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, and that is based on outcomes. All right, let's start with uh, Ken. Ken Candido, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Dr. Hansen. Uh, I'm a professor of clinical anesthesia and surgery at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. I'm also a chairman of my own department of anesthesiology with 32 residents and nine uh, certified nurse anesthetists and uh, 21 faculty members. I practice in Chicago interventional pain medicine and pain management, and I also run my, my department of anesthesiology. I've been doing this for 32 years. All right. Well, what do you, what do you want to talk about today? I'd like to describe and discuss whether having guidelines for interventional pain is actually useful or not useful for making clinical decisions related to how we take care of our patients who have chronic pain conditions. All right. Well, go ahead. Well, I would say that of the challenges we have as interventionalists, we have to do the right thing for the right reasons, and we have to decide the vector that's going to take us to the best possible clinical outcome. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a great premise, Dr. Hansen, and not just the best outcome, but how do we do things safely, efficiently, and cost-effectively for our patients as well as for our practices. And as interventional pain physicians, we have a huge challenge ahead of us. That is to first and foremost place the self-interest of our patients at the forefront of every clinical decision, but also then to make clinical decisions using evidence-based medicine, the best practices model, and to do so without engendering undue risk or harm for our patients, also in an environment where it's not going to be an economic hardship either for the patient or for their insur- insurance company. So we're balancing and walking on a tightrope, and we have got to make our decisions, or our, I should say our decisions are influenced by what we know to be reasonable and customary in the peer-reviewed literature as having the preponderance of medical facts and evidence in support of our decision-making. Okay, you brought it up, the peer-reviewed literature. We've got some uh, guidelines. You uh, made some salient points in your last lecture about guidelines. Do we need them? We absolutely need guidelines, and guidelines do not replace clinical judgment. And I'm quick to tell my residents and my fellows and my uh, colleagues that we don't base our clinical decisions using necessarily a cookbook approach under any circumstances. And so what might be beneficial for one person and that which is supported by evidence may not necessarily hold true for the next person coming into your practice. So I think that guidelines are useful as parameters and to form an algorithm of managing our patients if they're used in conjunction with good, solid clinical judgment as well as what the patient requests or what their expectations are. Obviously, we don't want to impose our will on patients who come in with a certain set of expectations. We don't want to force patients to make decisions for their health based upon our own preconceived notions and ideas of which there's always bound to be some level of bias built in. I think it's really clear that we separate guidelines from standard of care. We don't necessarily imply standard of care. What we do is we try to introduce good, like you said, sound clinical judgment that can be applied to our patients. Now, you took us through some guidelines, and you took us through some formulation of those guidelines. Let's start with ASIP's guidelines. Sure. Well, ASIP's guidelines are really a heroic effort that has utilized uh, the 
phenomenon known as a systematic review, meaning taking the preponderance of all studies looking at either a, a technique of interventional pain or else outcomes related to those techniques. And the beauty of the most recent iteration or generation of the ASIP guidelines is that they're founded on more than 2,424 original articles. And that's, to, to date, no society, no entity, no group of uh, like-minded physicians has ever come forth with anything remotely as as powerful as those guidelines, and they've been re-updated. They've been updated as of 2013. The next generation or iteration is in the process of being developed and created. And I only wish and hope that individuals who practice interventional pain will utilize these as a stepping stone or foundation, which will help formulate an algorithmic approach to managing both complex as well as routine patients. Yeah, and you you nailed it there. It's, um, like you said, a labor of love. You don't sit down and you just read this thing. You don't do it. It's a reference, right? Yes, it's an encyclopedia. There's no question. Yeah. And so... Um, then we follow some other guidelines. Now, CIS, formerly uh, ISIS, has some guidelines. Yes, they have created some guidelines looking as well at, at neck pain, cervical, uh, discogenic pain, and, and facet-related pain, as well as uh, radiculopathic pain, primarily of the cervical and lumbar areas. And so they've also uh, made attempts, albeit and respectfully, of course, not to the same degree of scrutiny as the ASIP guidelines, meaning they haven't utilized the same voluminous or, or quantity of, of clinical references that ASIP has used. But they're, they're reasonably good guidelines as well. They've looked at the same phenomena and basically come up with almost identical findings as ASIP in many, many instances. Yeah, okay. Well, who else? Who else has guidelines? Well, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and the American Society of Anesthesiologists have created, I wouldn't necessarily use the term guidelines. They've actually had, I think, expert opinion pieces, which could potentially be construed as being guidelines, but they're more based upon individuals with a wealth of clinical and academic experience who look not at systematic reviews or meta-analyses, but who look at what they perceive to be the preponderance of evidence and then formulate their own unique opinions. We also have the International Association for the Study of Pain, which is a group that produced some guidelines several years ago. There was a little bit of a conflict of interest in my own professional opinion because it was funded by the pharmaceutical and uh, device manufacturing industry. We have the International Association for the Study of Pain, the American Pain Society, the Canadian Pain Society, and others. Well, you brought it up. What's a systematic review? A systematic review is where all the research pertaining to either a, a given diagnosis or a given therapeutic modality is evaluated and the information is collated and the best evidence coming from that is then synthesized and, and, and used to formulate guidelines. You're right. And, um, you know, I, I understand what you're talking about, bias, but what exactly is bias in these, these documents? When we read them and we try to, to synthesize the fact if this is a value to us, is it a value to our patients, what are we looking for? Great questions, Dr. Hansen. Essentially, bias is when we introduce our own personal preferences or unique belief systems into the process of evaluating data. So if we have preconceived notions about what we expect things to look like at the end of the day based on our own perhaps clinical experience or what we believe to be a truth told to us uh, or perpetuated over time by our mentors and our professors, then sometimes we look askance at some of the other data which shows a contrarian viewpoint. That's bias. Well, I... 
You know, I was surprised to hear that a, a device manufacturing company and pharmaceutical company sponsored interventional outcomes. Why would they do that? I think that the answer would be self-evident and obvious. I think because the, the data was shown subsequently to be very weak towards interventional therapy and very strongly in favor of, of pharmacological therapy, I think that we have the answer based upon who was uh, behind the neurological study, looking at the outcomes for neurological pain conditions and neuropathic pain. Yeah, got it. So, okay, well, tell us more. Tell us what you think is important for our, uh, you know, our, our society and physicians in general, particularly those that deal with interventional procedures. And I can tell you, we, we have our outcomes as a broad brushstroke, and you know that. We have opioid guidelines and we have interventional guidelines, both Herculean. But as far as interventional goes, what, what do we do with them? Great questions again. We use them again as a stepping stone or framework. They're not a substitute for good, solid clinical experience and judgment, meaning that you're not going to be able to justify utilizing a technique, methodology, or approach in an individual uh, if that individual is not a reasonable candidate for it. But what they do is they, they give you an idea about what the expectation is for that patient in terms of both success as well as safety as well as the economic burden to that patient of providing a certain therapeutic modality. So they're basically a framework or, or a stepping stone or a, a pathway, but we don't practice, as I stated earlier, cookbook medicine, but we do utilize what other individuals have found and have published and have studied as a great approach, at least a, a beginning point for how we, we, t we tackle both complex as well as routine pain uh, conditions. You're right. It's getting harder and harder for us to sometimes get our procedures approved and to move forward with the interventional procedure that we deem necessary. Are these a good uh, reference for us to use in that arena? Well, uh, I will have to tell you I have my own bias, but I've been a member of ASA, ASRA, ASIP and most of the major societies and as a preface to what I'm about to say, I have never identified or, or come across guidelines as thorough and as well researched as those of ASIP with more than 2,424 pieces of documentation in support of their statement. So while I'm dutifully respectful of all the societies who've made an attempt to try to do better things for our patients, I have to be as blunt and honest as I can, and that is that I didn't identify conflicts of interest in the ASIP document, nor did I see bias inherent in the process of creating the document, and I think that the fact that we have an encyclopedic massive creation is which is totally transparent and which can be looked at by anybody who's willing to take the time and make the effort to create a set of documents such as this i think this is this is without question the gold standard in the practice of interventional pain medicine okay i'm going to ask you another question and i'll <laughs> i'll let you go i know you want to get up to your room but i, I do want to mention this to the listeners asipp.org is a website you can go to publications and you can go to guidelines and they're free and they're in their entirety and pain physician journal is free in its entirety for the asking and that's extraordinary isn't it it's not only extraordinary it's unparalleled and unheard of throughout the uh, remainder of the interventional pain community i've never seen it certainly you can't do that with any of the other journals uh, promoted or are authored or edited by the other respective uh, societies. So this has been one of the unique features of being an ASIP member or not, 
even if you have no interest in becoming an ASIP member, you still have the editors who unselfishly put their product out there, which can be used as your own re- resource or reference and which can actually stimulate you to go and, and seek alternative explanations or answers for cases and for clinical scenarios. So it's a very unique feature uh, of what ASIP has done, ASIP.org and the journal Pain Physician. They're unparalleled in the annals interventional therapy for the type of resource that's available for any and all customers. And that's worldwide, best for all. Okay, let's get to the meat of this. Cervical, what matters? Cervical medial branch blocks both diagnostically as well as therapeutically, and cervical interlaminar injections are also techniques for which there's strong evidence, meaning level 1 or level 2 clinical evidence. Those are the two techniques uh, both diagnostic, therapeutic, and as well as radiofrequency neurotomy or ablative procedures at the level of the cervical medial branch nerves. So we started saying, so that's what the unique features are of the evidence for this for a cervical spine. Basically, around the facet joints, the median branches, the facet joint nerves, and performing diagnostic and therapeutic modalities as well as radiofrequency long-term ablative techniques. That, that's all supported by level one or two evidence, as are cervical interlaminar but not transferaminal injections, and cervical discography has much weaker evidence associated with it. For cervical facet joint intra-articular injections, the, the level of evidence is three or less, meaning that it's not supported or substantiated using solid clinical evidence. Great. Thoracic. Thoracic, once again, we have thoracic medial branch blocks diagnostically as well as therapeutically and thoracic interlaminar injections. Now, one of the distinguishing features between the cervical and the thoracic spine is here, the evidence for neurotomy using radiofrequency continual energy is not as robust as in the cervical spine. I just believe it's due to the lack of uh, high-quality studies, and we need to conduct more studies because I'm convinced that that works, but the evidence does not support my own conviction. All right. Quickly to the top procedures in the lumbar. The top procedures in the lumbar, I think, once again, diagnostic and therapeutic medial branch injections of the lumbar facets, as well as radiofrequency neurotomy of those nerves, all supported by level one or two evidence, fairly robust for radiculopathic pain of the lower extremities emanating from a condition of the lumbar spine. We have evidence in support of caudal epidural injections, interlaminar injections, or transferaminal injections. However, when we start to look at discogenic or axial pain, transferaminal falls off from those three respective approaches. When we looked at failed back surgery syndrome. Now caudal is the only member of that three distinguished groups still standing. But when we come back to spinal stenosis, once again we find that the three techniques, caudal, interlaminar, and transferaminal, all have reasonable evidence in support and in favor of those procedures. SI joint injections, reasonable evidence for diagnostic blocks, but not for therapeutic blocks. And when it comes to prolonged therapy or treatment of SI joint-related pain, cooled RF of that joint is supported by level one or two evidence, but not conventional or pulsed radiofrequency techniques. Awesome. Well, that is the income uh, knowledge that we really want and our listeners really want, and I appreciate your time. Great lecture. Come back, and we'll talk again. Thanks, Dr. Hansen. Much appreciated. Take care. Oh, yeah, we're back. Um, Really important stuff really important stuff i'm enjoying every minute uh, i can be around folks like this and so i was at this weekend at the florida society of interventional pain physicians meeting it's a really good meeting by the way um top-notch folks sandy silverman was there uh, he heard a lot of uh, 
people before on this podcast. Dr. Tracy was there. Dr. Deitch was there. I could go on and on. They were fantastic. And um, we got the opportunity to sit down, break a little bread, talk about the stuff that we need to talk about to move this field forward. So we get these kind of outcomes to to better offer you and to service you uh, our desire, and that's uh, to be the best uh, clinicians we can be. So uh, leave a review, paininformation.com. I'm reading your stuff, and I appreciate you sending stuff in. I'm a little behind, but I'm going to catch up. And go to iTunes, please. Um, leave a review. That helps us rank. Uh, it's unbelievable uh, some of the, the things that are ranking above me. <laughs> Uh, some have nothing to do with uh, the practice of medicine. So anyway, uh, we will get together soon. I've got a whole pack of fun stuff here that I got from the meeting. One of them is uh, uh, a, a true legend, and um, he's an anesthesia legend that actually helped develop one of the most important drugs uh, we use in anesthesia and for pain control. So we look forward to you listening, coming back, and we'll see you soon. That just got recorded.